Amen. Hello, lovely people, and hello to you online as well. It is great to be speaking this morning. Well, we restarted this Kingdom Life um, series a few weeks back, um, looking at the book of Acts. We started it a long time ago, and then we've re-picked it back up again. And this second half, really, we've been focusing on a guy called Paul. And for anybody who is seeking answers to the, the truth of the Christian faith, should ask this question. What was it that transformed this guy, Paul, from a self-righteous, hot-headed, law-keeping, Christian-killing Pharisee into a gracious, unselfish, Christian missionary servant? Like, what could have possibly happened for this to take place? Well, many of us know the answers to this because we saw it in Acts 9, on the road Damascus. If you remember, Paul encounters the resurrected Jesus, and, and it radically changes his life forever. But I think it's really important for us to understand that Paul's spiritual revelation in a flash of light was not the whole story. In other words, when Paul discovered to his utter shock and dismay that Jesus was alive, This was just the beginning of the story. See, the day that Paul met Jesus, he for sure received a new life and a new heart and a new purpose, but he also received a new master. Up until this point, he's been a slave to religion, but now he's become a servant of Jesus. And Jesus then goes to work on changing him from what he was to what he was became. This discipleship process that all apprentices of Jesus go through is called sanctification. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He said, a disciple is someone whose ultimate goal is to live their life the way Jesus would if he were me. So as we come to Acts 25 this morning, I want us to keep this in the forefront of our minds. That Jesus is in a process of sanctification in Paul's life. What we're going to see today is that Paul is facing a whole load of trials. I'm just going to highlight three. And any one of these trials would be bad enough. But what Paul has learned is that as a follower of Jesus, that God is going to use these circumstances to grow his faith. As I'd mentioned last week, we had a brief uh, pause in this series where Aid talked about giving. But maybe this is your first time at church. Maybe you don't know anything about this book. Maybe you're watching online. Let me just quickly uh, catch us up on what's happened so far. So we know that Paul is on trial for his life. We know that Paul goes to Jerusalem where it all kicks off. There is a riot and uh, a Jewish mob basically beat him up. Uh, They try to kill him. And the only reason that Paul really survives this is because Roman guards jump in and they stop it. Then we find out these guards, they find out that Paul is actually a Roman citizen, which means that he has certain rights and privileges. So they take him into custody. He goes on trial in front of the Jewish council, and then he's transferred to Caesarea. Then we saw in Phil's message just a couple of weeks ago in Acts 24 that Paul goes on trial before the governor in Judea, a guy called Felix. 
In fact, at the back end of chapter 24, verse 24, Paul actually shares the gospel with Felix. And then we see at the end of uh, verse 25, it says this. It says, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough. You may leave. Just before we get into Acts 25, I want us for a moment to park in chapter 24 in verse 27. I don't think we read it before, but let me just read it for you now. It'll come up on the screens or do open your Bibles. It says this, chapter 24, verse 27. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. The first trial that Paul faces here could be called drawn out waiting. We're told this guy Felix basically leaves him in jail for two years. Let's just stop and think about this for a moment. It literally takes us two seconds to read that two years but it was a whole 24 months that Paul has been locked up. I mean, think back in your own life two years ago and think of everything that has happened. That's how long Paul has been incarcerated. How would you like it, like right now, to be locked up, confined in a cell, out of commission for the next two years of your life? Now, don't raise your hands. But how many of you have been in custody? Imagine this. Paul is a guy who is moving through life full throttle. He's been racing down, if you like, the motorway of world missions for about two decades, where there's this unexpected pit stop, if you like. And not only has his engine blown up, but his wheels have literally come off. He's in a cell and he has to wait. John Ortberg, in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, has one of the best chapters you will ever read on waiting. He says this, For good reasons, God, just, uh, God does not always move at our frantic pace. We're often double espresso followers of a decaf sovereign. How cool is that? I mean, some types of waiting, like on the M25 or in the doctor's surgery, they're, they're trivial on the overall scheme of things. There are, for sure, way more difficult kinds of waiting. The waiting of a single person, hoping to, that God might have marriage in store for them. The waiting of a childless couple who desperately want to start a family. The waiting of Nelson Mandela in a prison cell for 27 years and wonders if he'll ever be free and his country will ever know justice. The waiting of someone that longs to have meaningful and significant work but just can't seem to find it. The waiting of a deeply depressed person wondering which morning they might wake up and actually want to live. The waiting of a child who feels awkward and clumsy and longs for the day that they'll get picked first in the playground. The waiting of persons of color for the day everyone's child will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. 
The waiting of an older person in a nursing home alone, seriously ill, waiting to die. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But let me ask you, church, in the room, online, what's on your list? What are you waiting for? I expect for all of us, we could list something that we're waiting for. Well, let me tell you, church, waiting may be the single hardest thing we are all called to do. And immediacy has been drilled into us by our culture and the media so that the trial and the waiting of life is almost intolerable. We hate to wait. And as a result, <clears throat> as a result of not wanting to wait, we hate to, to, to uh, understand the learning and the benefits of waiting. I said this to Ant this week, that God is slow, but he's never late. Think about it. Abraham waited for more than two decades for the son that God promised him in Isaac. Moses waited more than 40 years in the back end of a desert herding sheep until God used him. The nation of Israel had to wait 400 years to get out of slavery, and then they waited another 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Jesus had to wait 30 years until he began his ministry. And the best, or one of the best, biblical examples of the benefits of waiting in the Bible was Joseph. Do you remember Joseph? He also spent two years in prison, like Paul. This is what Frederick Mayer, who was a contemporary of D.L. Moody, says. Uh, he's writing about Joseph. He said this. The two-year delay developed in Joseph a patient maturity in his spirit, steadfastness in his character, and prepared him even more fully for the years ahead. Look, if you're here today, or you're watching online, and you're in the beginning or the middle of a personal trial, it can be easy for us to feel bitter or resentful and forget the lessons that we can learn in our waiting. In the same book that I mentioned earlier, if you want to walk on water, you've got to step out the boat. Ortberg says this, Peter wrote, do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord is one day, oh, sorry, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. God is not slow about his promise, uh, as some think of slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God himself knows what it means to wait, because he waits for us. He waits for people, doesn't he? Ortberg carries on. He says, an economist, uh, an economist, uh, uh, economist, if I can say it, <laughs> once read these words, you know, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, and got very excited. The economist said this, Lord, is it true that a thousand years for us is just like a minute to you? Yes, the Lord replied. That's my Lord voice. <laughs> the economist says, then a million dollars to us must be like a penny to you. Yes, the Lord replied. He said, Lord, would you give me one of those pennies? The Lord said, yes. All right, wait a minute. 
fantastic. Orberg continues, he said, too often we want God's resources, but we don't want his timing. We want the penny, but not the minutes. And we forget that his work in us while we wait is as important as what we're waiting for. Waiting means we give God the benefit of the doubt and that he knows what he is doing. See, the thing is, even if we know there's value in waiting, it's still hard. It is. The Apostle Paul faces this drawn-out waiting. But even worse than that, we see the second trial that he faces here, which is false accusation. It's ultimately what put him in prison in the first place. And it's what's keeping him there. So let's look at this um, in Acts 25 uh, from verse 7. You can open your Bibles or it will come up on the screen. It says, when Paul, came in the, when Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. See, while there were many serious charges, none of them could actually be proved. However, they were firmly planted in this, guy's, this guy Festus' mind. We could say that false accusation is linked with gossip. You know what it's like? People make assumptions or comments about you to others. And I think false accusation and gossip like mud being thrown at a clean wall. It might not stick, but it does leave a mark, doesn't it? Have you ever been the victim of false accusation, of gossip? When we're falsely accused of something, or we're gossiped about, we can feel betrayed, and it does leave a mark. And here is Paul. He's a good man. He's done nothing wrong, and yet all he has is his word against theirs. We continue, verse 8. It says, Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Paul says, I'm innocent. He's defending himself. He's facing this drawn-out waiting, this false accusation, which leads us to his third trial here, which is unfair exploitation. In other words, Paul is being used. Like the reason for his imprisonment was explained in that very first verse verse that we looked at, uh, verse... um, 27 of chapter 24, Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, so he left Paul in prison. So Felix was doing the Jews a favor, and now we have like this deja vu all over again in chapter 25, verse 9, where it says this, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges. I mean, it seems like they're not really seeing Paul as a person, but more like a sacrificial pawn. See, Felix and Festus, they knew that any issue with the Jews was like a political time bomb 
And that's the reason that they keep Paul in jail, if you like. They think that they're preventing this political time bomb from going on. But what they're actually doing is they're exploiting an innocent man. See, God calls us, doesn't he, to love people and use things. But when we get this the wrong way round, when we love things and use people, everything gets messed up. It's probably the biggest issue in our world right now, and it's a mess. Paul's been in prison for over two years, and he's being used. He's being pushed from pillar to post. He's being taken advantage of. Why? Because he's valuable to someone in order to do a favor for someone else. So what do we do in this kind of situation? Well, as always, when Paul has the opportunity, he does what he always does, is he speaks out against it. We see it in verse 10 to 12. It says this, Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by the Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar, which is Paul's right as a Roman citizen. Then Festus replies, verse 12, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. I mean, at this point, Paul must have been like, whoop, 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 here we go, this is great news, because if you remember back in Acts 23, Jesus stood next to him and told him that he would testify about him in Rome. Paul longs to, 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 to honor this calling. He wants to go to Rome. Imagine this emotional roller coaster that Paul must have been going on. He's literally just been told he's going to go on an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome, courtesy of the Roman government. He's like, yes, finally, after two years, there is light at the end of the tunnel for Paul. Praise God. Or is there? In verse 13, it says this. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Actually, (laughs) what we thought was light at the end of the tunnel, in fact, is the headlight on the front of an oncoming freight train. And he gets handed over to another set of leaders who actually are totally untrustworthy and totally immoral to the core. And just so you know, and you're aware of this, Agrippa and Bernice are brother and sister, but they're married. They have the same parents. And these are the people that are now going to decide Paul's future. I mean, how must Paul have been feeling at this point? He's been messed about by Felix. He's been messed about by Festus. And now his fate lies with these two, Agrippa and Bernice. So the big question, friends, is what do we do in the midst of the trials of life, drawn out, waiting, false accusation, and actually any other trials for that matter. 
Well, the answer to this question, I think, comes from us understanding Paul's thinking by reading a comment that he made to his friends in Corinth when he was going through similar trials in Asia. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. It says this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death but this happened that we might rely, we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, the God we can trust is the one that raised Jesus from the dead. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then he can do anything so we can trust him. And we can trust him even if we can't out. Paul tells us that the benefit of trials is what they do is they make us totally dependent. When life seems to pull the rug from under us, that's when we, re- we, re- we really learn to trust God. But so often when we're in the trials of life, we often ask the questions, don't we? God, like, what are you up to? Like, why me? Why this? Why now? But even in the midst of our questioning, We simply need to trust him. That's it. We need to trust him. I'm going to close by using an illustration from a film. My kids are so proud of me, the amount of movies I managed to get into my talks. But this is a very, very important movie from my childhood. It's the 1984 classic, The Karate Kid. Yeah, I know they've done a remake, but how many of you have seen the original uh, 1984 Karate Kid? Quite a few of you. Look, even if you haven't seen this movie, you should understand the gist of what I'm about to say. In the film, Daniel LaRusso, the classic American hero-to-be, meets Mr. Miyagi, the short but stocky karate master. Daniel agrees to become Miyagi's student, Miyagi seems to not be teaching him anything about karate. Instead, he employs him in a number of different household chores. Wax the car, paint the fence, sand the floor. Remember? Wax on, wax off, breathe in, breathe out. Every day, Daniel feels more and more frustrated, thinking, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I planned. This has nothing to do with my goal of learning karate. One night, in a fit of rage, Daniel explodes. We made a deal here. You're supposed to teach and I'm supposed to learn. Mr. Miyagi responds, you've learned plenty. Do you like my Miyagi voice? And Daniel replies, yeah, I've learned to wash your car, I've learned to paint your fence, I've learned to sand your floor, I've learned to be your slave. Can any of you remember what Miyagi says to Daniel next? He says, not everything is as it seems. And then Daniel says, bullfighting. No, he doesn't really say that, but this is church, I can't really repeat what he said. But he says, bullfighting, I'm going home. Miyagi then says, 
Daniel's son, show me, sand the floor. Show me, wax on, wax off. Show me, paint the fence. Show me, show me, show me. And guess what? Daniel can show him. Then suddenly, all these strange disciplines, these hard things make sense because Daniel has been transformed. And that's so often how it works in the Christian life. In our apprenticeship to Jesus, we meet Jesus as our Savior, but then he becomes our Lord and our Master, and we become his students so that we can become like him. And we expect him to teach us, and he does, but not always in the ways that we think. He puts us through all kinds of strange circumstances and trials, and then he asks us to trust him. And just like sanding and painting and waxing, all of these things often feel strange and uncomfortable, and they can seem to go on and on and on. And as they go on, we sometimes have the tendency to feel resentful, frustrated, angry, thinking, this isn't what I signed up for. But remember, church, not everything it seems. Because for those who are patient, those who will persevere and are willing to learn, there'll be a day when it all comes together and it starts to make sense. A day when we have to wait and God says, show me peace, show me patience instead of anger and frustration. A day when we get what we think we deserve and God says, show me contentment instead of greed. A day when someone hurts us or takes advantage of us and God says, show me forgiveness rather than vengeance. A day in our marriage when God says, show me sacrifice instead of selfishness. And we will know how to demonstrate all of these things because God has built them into us. Over time, we will learn what the master has been up to and that we can trust him. And that's what following Jesus is about. It's not a one-time spiritual revelation in a flash of light. It's not the miracle of the moment. It's the task of a lifetime. The apostle Paul knew it. The question is, do we? Shall we stand?